Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. You may open your Bibles to Ezekiel 31, and we will get there eventually. Tonight, this very rainy night in Smyrna, Tennessee, is February 14th, 2018, and it is sort of a convergence of all kinds of human tradition. Today was Valentine's Day, a day that I have not observed for the last couple of decades, but I'm warming up to it a whole lot more here recently. But it is also... Ash Wednesday because Easter falls early this year. So all of these human traditions are kind of falling together. Yesterday was Mardi Gras. Does anybody know what Mardi Gras means? Fat Tuesday. Yeah. Today is the beginning of Lent. Lent comes to us from an old English term, actually an Anglo-Saxon term, Lenkton which just is a reference to springtime because that is the time when the days would lengthen. And that's how the word was passed on to us. It's just referred to as Lent now. And it is 40 days of Catholics and other Lent observant people giving up something. Usually it's something that they didn't like in the first place. It's, that's it. For the next 40 days, no Brussels sprouts for me. And Huh? I'm giving up, so, well, that one's a little tougher, I would suppose. And, and so the, the folks who do that try to explain that that is a way of aligning themselves with the 40 days of Jesus being hungry before his temptation at the hands of Satan, even though that occurred at the very beginning of his ministry. There's actually no direct correlation between that event and the things that people do now for Lent. But they say that it's 40 days of afflicting their souls in some way in order to prepare for Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, and and then uh, Easter Sunday. There's no, as I said, no biblical admonition that says that you should observe 40 days before Easter or prepare yourself or afflict your soul in preparation for Easter. Uh, There is only one 40-day period of fasting and weeping anywhere in the Bible, and that is 40 days of weeping over the death of Tammuz. The connection is kind of unavoidable because the Ishtar feast, which is a spring feast, Ishtar was the mother of Tammuz, and so 40 days of weeping leading up to the death of Tammuz kind of makes sense. The only problem is the Bible says, don't do that. (laughs) Whatever you do, don't do that. But it's just simply become a tradition in the church. And so I saw people today walking around with ash on their forehead because it's Ash Wednesday, and They justify that by saying it's a reminder that ashes to ashes and dust to dust. And 
I'm just glad that I go to GCA. I'm just glad that we are not bound to all of those human traditions. Now, the reason I mention those was not just to say that other people do that and the Bible doesn't say to do it and the Bible disallows some of it. The point is we're going to see tonight another example of stuff we can check. I really like it when the Bible gives us stuff that we can check. I like it when God says in advance that he's going to do something and then we can look at history. We don't even have to rely on the Bible. We can just look at human history and we can see where those events sure enough occurred after God said that they were going to occur. There are things that we've looked at as we've been working through Ezekiel, like the fall of Tyre and Sidon, and and then we saw the destruction through Nebuchadnezzar and then through Alexander the Great, and we saw the fulfillment of that once great city being brought down to a place where fishermen would dry their nets. I like stuff like that because it doesn't take Even though I agree that faith is essential for Christianity, it doesn't take a great deal of faith. It only takes exploration and examination to see that the Bible, before these things occurred, actually says they're going to occur, and then that they did occur. Now, if that only happened once in the Bible, then I think we could say, lucky guess by whoever wrote that book. But it keeps happening. It keeps occurring over and over. And, and what we're getting out of this, what I hope you're getting out of this study of Ezekiel so far, even though it's not written about us, it is certainly teaching us a lot about God. God says over and over again that he is in charge of the nations of the earth. He's in charge of bringing up one king and taking down another king. He is in charge of the events of human history and especially those events that have to do with Jerusalem and the nations in the Middle East and the Gentiles that surround Jerusalem. That is the focus of his attention all the way through the Old Testament and is the demonstration of his ability to tell the future in advance, not just predicting it, but declaring it and then using his almighty power to bring these things to pass. I hope you've also seen that God works through human agency, that God says, I'm going to do this, but then he'll bring Nineveh to come do it, or he'll bring Nebuchadnezzar and the armies of Babylon to come do it, because he's going to act that way again. He has already told us there is a time of trouble coming, such as never was or ever would be again, but he's going to use human agency to bring that about until Christ returns and until he establishes his kingdom, and then all the Gentile nations flow to Jerusalem. If we can keep finding these things in the Bible, and we can, these things where God in advance says that he's going to do something, and then sure enough, that occurs, we see it frequently enough and can observe it frequently enough in human history that we have to conclude that it's God doing it or that the people who wrote this book had some miraculous ability to know the future in exacting detail before it happened. 
And so we know since these things happened genuinely, literally, historically, on the face of the planet, on planet Earth, in time, well then when we read the New Testament, we read God predicting the things that he's going to do, even when we read things like the reclamation of Israel, the regathering of Israel, which by the way is coming right up in Ezekiel. Just a couple of chapters from now, God's going to say that he's raising up the whole house of Israel. In a couple of chapters, he says he's going to bring the stick of Ephraim and the stick of Judah, and they're going to be one in his hand again. These things haven't happened yet in history and time. And yet we find all of these things that Ezekiel says that do happen in history and time. Therefore, we can conclude that the other things are going to happen in history and in time. You will also notice that the things that have occurred, the things that actually have come true that God through his prophets have predicted, those things have come true very, very literally, very, very genuinely. At no point does any writer of the Bible, especially any New Testament writer of the Bible, at no point do they ever say, And these things that were predicted by the prophets came true in some allegorical, spiritualized sense. In fact, all the way through Jesus' ministry, the things that he fulfilled, that the prophet said he was going to fulfill, he fulfilled genuinely and literally. Like, for instance, on his way into Jerusalem, he said, go inside the wall, there's going to be a donkey and a colt. Because Zacharias said there's going to be that the Messiah is going to come to you riding on a colt and the, riding on a donkey. No man's ever ridden before. Okay, well, then he had to fulfill that genuinely, literally, right in space and time. Mm-hmm. He didn't go into Jerusalem and say, look how lowly and meek I am. Isn't it just like I was on a donkey? Isn't that some allegorical idea that I'm fulfilling? No, he actually did exactly what the prophet said he was going to do. So the point of bringing all that up is to say, as we read through these things in Ezekiel, tonight we're going to read two chapters uh, talking about the fate of Assyria and the fate of Egypt and then a funeral dirge for Pharaoh. And so this is God not only telling Egypt in advance, I'm going to destroy you and take you down as a nation, But then we can look at human history and see that they never again were the great empire that they once were. But then God, in order to tell Pharaoh, this is definitely going to happen to you, says, well, just think about Assyria. What was Assyria like? Assyria looked pretty good, pretty strong. He's going to liken them to a great big tree that gave shadow to all the other nations, and the birds could come and land in the tree, and they were a great high nation, but... Because they tried to reach up to heaven, I destroyed them. And now here you are with that same haughtiness, so I'm going to destroy you. Okay, it's the same God, same opinion, same way that he still works. I think that that should be a warning to the nations of the earth to this very day. Watch how haughty you get, how prideful, how much you forget God in the things you do, and how much you say... My hands built this. My hands accomplished this. We're the great nation that we are because manifest destiny. We built it. We did it. I'm a self-made man. 
That's the same thing that God took Assyria out for, took Egypt out for, took Ammon and Moab out for, because God does not want the haughtiness of human beings to neglect him or think that they accomplish things on this planet in time by their own strength. And God doesn't change. So God still feels that way, and that ought to be a warning to us. But if you look at the way the world is going, if you look at the haughtiness of the world, if you look at the way that the world has become, what was the question last night? How many folks in Iceland believe, what was the quote? They don't believe in the biblical story of of creation. What percentage of the population believes in the biblical story? Yeah, people under 25, that's what it was. We were playing trivia last night at men's group, could you tell? And the answer was zero, zero. There are zero people in Iceland who actually believe the biblical story of creation. Okay, so then who do they think created it? How does stuff get created? Men do it, human beings do it. Well, that kind of arrogance, that kind of haughtiness is worldwide. We see it everywhere these days. And we especially see the nations of the earth continuing to suppress the knowledge of Yahweh, the knowledge of the God of the Bible, the knowledge of the God of Christianity. And so you can see why he would say, there's going to be a time of trouble coming on the planet, such as never was or ever would be again. And then my son's going to come back with a two-edged sword out of his mouth, and there's going to be so much bloodshed in the Megiddo plain that the blood is going to flow to the bridles of the horses. Why would God do such a thing? Because he's been saying over and over and over and over again, don't be like that. And of course, human beings just continue to be like that. And God has demonstrated over and over again, if you're like that, I'm going to defend my own honor, my own name, my own power and authority, and I'm going to crush you because you are like that. And human beings go, man, it's a shame that he did that to Egypt. Well, it's really bad what he did to the Assyrians, but he'll never do it to us because we're America. And so that's not going to happen to us. So I hope you're getting all that out of Ezekiel because I know a lot of this content doesn't directly apply to us. I know that a lot of this content is historical. But in a moment, well, not tonight, but in the next couple of weeks, it's all of a sudden going to become very prophetic and predict things that simply have not happened yet in human history. And since everything else in Ezekiel has happened in human history, we have every confidence that the things he's about to talk about also have to happen very genuinely and literally in human history. Make sense? Yes, sir. I'm just using logic here. Is that reasonable logic? Mm -hmm. Okay, so tonight we'll get through... uh, the predictions against Egypt, then God is going to turn his attention back to Israel, a bit about Mount Seir, and then quite soon, the blessings that have to come to Israel in the regathering of Israel and in the raising up of Israel, life from the dead, the whole house of Israel and the house of Judah and the house of Ephraim. And then all of a sudden, by the time we get to chapter 40, the breakout of a temple that we've yet to see, and the prediction of the reestablishment of Israel's worship at a temple in Jerusalem, things that we just have not seen. And so all of these things, I contend, 
still have to happen. Now, whatever that does to anybody's particular eschatology, if that makes anybody's eschatology seem less likely or more likely, I don't care. I only care what the Bible says. And the Bible says things that if you just read it on its face, lead you to a very premillennial point of view because there's just stuff that still has to be done. You, you just simply can't say, well, when Jesus comes back, that's the end. That's it. We're done. Because there's too much yet to be done. All right, that was all introduction. So Ezekiel 31. We're going to start reading. And it came about in the 11th year, on the third month, on the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his multitude, whom are you like in your greatness? I think God was almost being sarcastic there. <laughs> Let's talk about who you're like in how great you are. And then he immediately brings up Assyria. And he's going to say, wasn't Assyria great? Man, if you were going to compare yourself to anybody, you'd be comparing yourself to Assyria. Because Assyria, will, oh, that's right, they're gone. Past term. Past term. <laughs> Used to be great. Whom are you like in your greatness? Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon with beautiful branches and forest shade and very high. And its top was among the clouds. The waters made it grow and the deep made it high. With its rivers, it continually extended all around its planting place. And it sent out its channels to all the trees in the field. Therefore, its height was loftier than all the trees of the field. And its boughs became more and its branches became long because of the many waters as it spread them out. All the birds of the heavens nested in its boughs. And under its branches, all the beasts of the field gave birth. And all the great nations lived under its shade. In other words, it overshadowed the greatest of nations. Whatever nations you could name, Assyria was the top dog. I just mixed my metaphors. No, it's a top tree that's also a top dog. That's also the big cheese. <laughs> so it was beautiful, says verse 7. In its greatness, in the length of its branches, for its roots extended to many waters. The cedars in God's garden could not match it. The cypresses could not compare with its boughs. And the plane trees could not match its branches. No tree in God's garden could compare with it in its beauty. I made it beautiful with the multitude of its branches and all the trees of Eden, which were in the garden of God, were jealous of it. Okay, by now you're saying, well, then that's the place I want to be. Clearly, Assyria, that is a great, great city. Therefore, God says, therefore, verse 10, thus says the Lord God, because it is high in stature and it has set its top among the clouds, and its heart is haughty in its loftiness. Therefore, I will give it into the hands of a despot of the nations. 
he will thoroughly deal with it. According to its wickedness, I have driven it away. Okay, did that actually happen in time in history? The city of Nineveh fell to Nabopolassar, who was Nebuchadnezzar's father, in 612 B.C. And the rest of the Assyrian army was crushed by Nebuchadnezzar in 609 B.C. at the Battle at Haran. So did God do it? Yeah, God absolutely did exactly what he had told Assyria he was going to do. You great lofty nation, I am going to cut you down to nothing because of your haughtiness. Because I made you beautiful. I made you lofty. And then you got lifted up in pride. And that is awfully, awfully typical of human beings. Mm -hmm. Rather than recognize the goodness of God, rather than recognize that it is God who has blessed us with what we are, what we have, every day that we have good health and clothes on our back and something to eat and and all the extra blessings, the cars to drive and the homes to live in and just all the stuff, the stuff, the stuff. At some point, human beings start to believe that they had something to do with it. This is going my way because I made it go this way. And if you'll just send me $50, I'll send you a CD on how you can be like me. And you can have a successful life too. Well, God said, that because they didn't remember that it was him who did it, that he made them beautiful, for that reason, therefore, I'm going to give it into the hands of a despot, and he certainly did that. And he will thoroughly deal with it. As I just said, between 610 and 609 B.C., God thoroughly dealed with it through the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. According to its wickedness, I have driven it away. And alien tyrants of the nations have cut it down and left it. On the mountains and in all the valleys, its branches have fallen and its boughs have been broken in all the ravines of the land. And all the peoples of the earth have gone down from its shade and left it. On its ruin, all the birds of heaven will dwell and all the beasts of the field will be on its fallen branches in order that all trees. Okay, so what are trees now in this story that Ezekiel, this vision that he's seeing? What do trees represent? Nations, all the nations that are under the shade of the chief tree in order that all the trees by the waters may not be exalted in their stature. In other words, since I'm taking Assyria down, let that be a lesson to everybody else. Pay attention. Because Assyria was haughty, I took them down. Don't be that way. In order that all the trees by the waters may not be exalted in their stature, nor set their top among the clouds, nor their well-watered mighty ones stand erect in their height. For they have all been given over to death, to the earth beneath, among the sons of men, with those who go down to the pit. Do you understand that phrase? That's God himself saying, you're just men. And every one of you are going to go down to the pit. Every one of you are going to die. Everybody is going the way of all flesh and the sons of men. Therefore, don't get too lifted up in yourself. 
Because what are you? When you're gone, I'll still be here. God is still going to be here raising up nations and taking down nations. He's still going to be running the complete show, so who are you to stand up in your haughtiness against him? And by taking down Assyria, that was supposed to be a lesson to all the other nations that were under the shadow of Assyria. Well, one of the chief cohorts of Assyria in battling against Nebuchadnezzar was Egypt. So Egypt should have taken the lesson. Egypt should have known, don't be like that, because if God can take down Assyria, he can just as easily take you down. So thus says the Lord God. Verse 15, on the day when it went down to Sheol, when it went down to the grave, when I caused the destruction, the utter destruction of Assyria, I caused lamentations. Everybody was sad. Everybody was lamenting. I caused that. I closed the deep over it and held back its rivers. And its many waters were stopped up. And I made Lebanon mourn for it. And all the trees of the field wilted away on account of it. I made the nations quake at the sound of its fall when I made it go down to Sheol with those who go down to the pit. And all the well-watered trees of Eden, the choicest and the best of Lebanon, were comforted in the earth beneath. They also went down with it to Sheol, to those who were slain by the sword, and those who were its strength lived under its shade among the nations. So, to which among the trees of Eden are you thus equal in glory and greatness? There's God back to his original question. Now knowing that, now knowing what I did and how I took down Assyria, let me ask you a question again. How great are you? That's God saying to Egypt, so now to which among the trees of Eden are you thus equal in glory and greatness? Yet you will be brought down with the trees of Eden to the earth beneath. You will lie in the midst of the uncircumcised with those who were slain by the sword. So is Pharaoh and all his multitude, declares the Lord God. So here's God not only saying, you can look at history and see what I've done. So now I can tell you what I'm going to do to you based on the reality of what I've already done. So God himself says that his own activity in human history is a lesson to the rest of us. Everybody else that's alive on the planet should look back at the history of God and what God has already accomplished and take a lesson from it. We should all know that we are just human beings. We're just here for a little while. Our lives are like a vapor. He's God Almighty, God Eternal. Therefore, we ought to be on our face in the dust in front of him, and we certainly shouldn't be getting arrogant or proud or boastful against that God. And he is the one who gave us the methodology that says, look at what I've done. Look at what I already did. Now, based on what I did... What do you think I'm going to do? Well, that, that's a lesson for all of us. Based on what I did, what do you think I'm going to do? Once I've said, don't weep for Tom Moose, what? Oh, well, never mind. So chapter 32 now is a lament over Pharaoh and over Egypt. 
And it came about in the twelfth year, in the twelfth month, on the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, You compared yourself to a young lion of the nations, yet you are like a monster in the seas. I told you last week that the name Pharaoh has that derivation. It can be translated either crocodile of the river or sea monster. So God is making fun of his title as Pharaoh. Say, you compared yourself to a young lion, but you're like a monster in the seas, and you burst forth in your rivers and muddied the waters with your feet and fouled their rivers. Anybody who's ever been on a riverbank knows that if you walk in the water, then your feet will muddy up the water because you stir up the silt and the mud that's under the water. He says to Pharaoh, the very fact that you were in the Nile means you've muddied the waters. He's going to say in a moment, I'm going to make them run as clean as oil. How am I going to do that? I'm going to make sure that you stop muddying it up. God has a sense of humor, by the way. I mean, that's pretty humorous. So thus says the Lord God, now I will spread my net over you, because how do you catch a sea monster? With a fishing net. So I'm going to spread my net over you with a company of many peoples, and they shall lift you up in my net. And I will leave you on the land, and I will cast you on an open field, and I will cause all the birds of the heavens to dwell on you, and I will satisfy the beasts of the whole earth with you. Now, keep your finger there. I have said before that in the book of Revelation, you can find direct references or allusions to every chapter of the book of Ezekiel. But the imagery of Ezekiel is carried over several times in the New Testament besides the book of Revelation. And Jesus himself used some of the images that we find here in the book of Ezekiel. For instance, go over to Matthew for a moment. Go to Matthew 13. And you're going to see Jesus saying something that sounds very much like what Ezekiel said about Assyria, that Assyria was a great tree and all the birds came and nested in it and everybody was in its shade. And Well, he's going to use that example to say that's what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like. And the difference is going to be the others that became like that, God chopped them down. This one's going to be like that and stay. Having compared the kingdoms of this earth, to that type of tree, look at Matthew 13, 31. He presented another parable to them. This is the same chapter wherein his disciples ask him, why do you speak in parables? He answered and said to them, to you and it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted, for whoever has, to him more will be given, and he shall have an abundance, but whoever does not have, Even what he has will be taken from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but won't understand. And you will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive, for the heart of this people has become dull. 
and with their ears they scarcely hear, their eyes are closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets, who is he talking about? The Old Testament prophets, and many righteous men desired to see and to hear what you see, and to hear what you hear, and they did not hear it. So that's the context for Jesus going back to this Ezekiel language. He's already quoted right from Isaiah. So what he's doing here is making direct reference back to the prophets. You know what the prophets have said and what the prophets have predicted, and you know that God himself, through Ezekiel, compared the great nations of this earth to a tree. And so he says, starting at verse 31, he presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And then Jesus doesn't want you to miss this point. And this is smaller than all the other seeds. So he's saying the kingdom of God starts really small. It is smaller than all the other seeds. But when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and it becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Okay, well, that's a direct allusion to what Ezekiel has already told us, that the great cities, the great nations of the earth did exactly that. And he says, that's what the kingdom of God is ultimately going to do here on the planet. But then having made reference to how the birds of the air and the beasts of the field are going to feast on Pharaoh and on his armies, go to Revelation 19 for just a second. And actually there are similar references in Luke 17, 37, Matthew 24, 28 kind of alludes to it as well. But go to Revelation 19. And we will look at verse 17 and 18. Oh, we'll start at 16. On his robe, the return of Christ, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, in order that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both men and slaves, small and great. So that concept, that idea of God destroying nations to create a meal for the carrion birds and the beasts of the field again, goes all the way back into Ezekiel, and you see it carried over all the way through Jesus' speech and then finally into the book of Revelation. So back to Ezekiel. Verse 4, of course, said, I will cause all the birds of the heavens to dwell on you, and I will satisfy the beasts of the whole earth with you. And I will lay your flesh on the mountains and fill the valleys with your refuse. And I will also make the land drink the discharge of your blood as far as the mountains and the ravines shall be full of you. And when I extinguish you, I will cover the heavens 
and darken their stars, and I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light, and all the shining lights in the heavens I will darken over you, and I will set darkness on your land. Does that sound familiar? Sounds like the same language that you find in the book of Daniel and carried over to the book of Revelation when the day of the Lord ultimately happens that there's going to be a darkening of the sky and the sun and the moon and the stars will not give their light just before the sign of the Son of Man appears in the heavens. Which is why Jesus could say like lightning flashing from the east to the west so that everybody would see it. So that's what the sign of the return of the Son of Man is going to be like. How frightening will that be? No sun, no moon, no stars. And then the sign of the Son of Man comes into the heavens. And what do human beings on planet Earth do? They're so happy that he's returning. What do they do? They run to the rocks and the dens of the earth, and they cry to the rocks in the caves. They cry, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. So human beings aren't particularly thrilled when he comes back because all of that language, the sun and moon not giving its light, is judgment language. But it's judgment language that comes all the way back here to Ezekiel. Verse 9, I will also trouble the hearts of many people when I bring your destruction among the nations into lands which you have not known. And I will make many peoples appalled at you, and their kings shall be horribly afraid of you when I brandish my sword before them, and they shall tremble every moment every man for his own life on the day of your fall. For thus says the Lord God, the sword of the king of Babylon shall come upon you. By the swords of mighty ones, I will cause your multitude to fall. All of them are tyrants of the nations, and they shall devastate the pride of Egypt, and all its multitude shall be destroyed." I will also destroy all its cattle from beside many waters, and the foot of man shall not muddy them any more, and the hoofs of beasts shall not muddy them. Then I will make their waters settle, and I will cause their rivers to run like oil, declares the Lord God. When I make the land of Egypt a desolation, and the land is destitute of that which filled it, When I smite all those who live in it, then they shall know that I am the Lord. Notice again how often God says that. Okay, I've told you in advance what I'm going to do. And so when I do it, when I destroy you, when I take you down, when I remove all the people, when I take you into the land of Babylon, which is exactly what happened, Nebuchadnezzar conquered Egypt, and then typical of the way that Nebuchadnezzar acted, uh, he took captives. And he cleared the land and took them back, cattle and man, the ones who weren't dead, went back into slavery in Babylon, exactly like God said was going to happen. But notice that God says, I'm going to pour out all of these terrible things on you for the purpose of making sure you know I'm the Lord. Because you were high, you were haughty, you were lifted up in yourself, I'm going to make sure you know that I am in charge. But I'm not going to make you know that by giving you blessings and feather beds I'm going to make you know that by putting you through horrible circumstances and then you're going to know that because I predicted this I also did this because I am the Lord verse 16 this is a lamentation and they shall chant it the daughters of the nations shall chant it 
Over Egypt, over all her multitude, they shall chant it, declares the Lord God. And it shall come about in the twelfth year, on the fifteenth of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, wail for the multitude of Egypt, and bring it down, her and the daughters of the powerful nations, to the netherworld, with those who go down to the pit. Whom do you surpass in beauty? Go down and make your bed with the uncircumcised. So God now has said, hey, you're pretty beautiful, right? Remember how the last chapter began? Who are you going to be compared to in all your splendor, all your beauty? He says, now who are you going to compare yourself to when I've taken you down to the pit of the uncircumcised? How beautiful are you then? Whom do you surpass in beauty, says verse 19. Go down and make your bed with the uncircumcised. They shall fall in the midst of those who are slain by the sword. She is given over to the sword. They have drawn her and all her multitudes away. The strong among the mighty ones shall speak of him and his helpers from the midst of Sheol. They have gone down. They lie still, the uncircumcised slain by the sword. Assyria is there, and all her company, her graves are round about her. All of them are slain, fallen by the sword, whose graves are set in the remotest parts of the pit, and her company is round about her grave. All of them are slain, fallen by the sword, who spread terror in the land of the living. Elam is there, and all her multitude around her grave, all of them slain, fallen by the sword, who went down uncircumcised to the lower parts of the earth, who instilled their terror in the land of the living, and bore their disgrace with those who went down to the pit. They have made a bed for her among the slain with the multitude. Her graves are around it. They are all uncircumcised, slain by the sword, although their terror was instilled in the land of the living. And they bore their disgrace with those who go down to the pit, and they were put in the midst of the slain. Meshach, Tubal, and all their multitude are there. Their graves surround them. All of them are slain by the sword, uncircumcised, though they instilled their terror in the land of the living. Nor do they lie beside the fallen heroes of the uncircumcised, who went down into Sheol with their weapons of war, and whose swords were laid under their heads. But the punishment for their iniquity rested on their bones, though the terror of those heroes was once in the land of the living. But in the midst of the uncircumcised, you will be broken and lie with those who are slain by the sword. There also is Edom and its kings and all its princes who for all their might are laid with those slain by the sword. They will lie with the uncircumcised and with those who go down to the pit. There also are the chiefs of the north, all of them, and all the Sidonians who in spite of the terror resulting from their might in shame went down with the slain. So they lay down uncircumcised with those slain by the sword and bore their disgrace of those who go down to the pit. These Pharaoh will see 
and he will be comforted for all his multitude slain by the sword, even Pharaoh and all his army, declares the Lord God. Though I instilled a terror of him in the land of the living, yet he will be made to lie down among the uncircumcised, along with those slain by the sword, even Pharaoh and all his multitude, declares the Lord. Do you understand what God was getting at there? He was saying there was a time when Assyria was great and they caused terror in the land. People were afraid of the armies of Assyria. People were afraid to come up against the king of Assyria. People were afraid, terrorized by Assyria. Where is he now? Dead and in the grave. People were afraid of Elam at one time. Elam had its terror on planet Earth. Elam had its king and its armies, and where are they now? They're down in the grave with the uncircumcised. By the way, I think the repetition of they're among the uncircumcised is they're not in covenant with me. They're not covenant people like you are. And so they are slain into Sheol. And then Meshach and Tubal, which, by the way, is not a reference to Moscow and Tubalts. Please get that out of your heads. There are so many prophetic books that try to claim that these are references to cities in Russia now. But when we, when we get to the various kingdoms that are coming up, we're going to run into Meshach and Tubal again. And we will talk about and read some of Fred Zaspel's word derivations of all these things. Meshach and Tubal actually existed historically in the area of Turkey. And it has nothing to do with Russia's coming down on Israel. That's just newsprint eschatology. You just, you just dissed the whole Left Behind series. I did. I just dissed the entire Left Behind series. And I'd like to do it again. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I, I, can, I can diss them with aplomb. So Edom and all its kings... And all the chiefs of the Sidonians, they were all great people at one time, Pharaoh. They were all people who had their time of terror on the planet. At one time, they all ruled. At one time, they had power. And where are they now? They're in the pit. They're in the grave with the uncircumcised, fallen, dead, killed by the sword. And God ends up saying, he killed them. And he's responsible for their judgment and for taking them off planet Earth. So then he's saying to Pharaoh, now considering that I did all that, let's talk about you. Because <laughs> you're about to join them. And historically, that happened. Now next week we will take a look at the concept of the watchman on the wall. And we will discuss whether it is a Christian concept. And then we're going to get into God just restoring Israel, prophecies of the restoration of Israel. And so I will say once again, all of these things that we read tonight, all the things that we've seen about Assyria and about Edom and about Moab and about the Sidonians and, and even about Egypt, all of those things God said that he was going to do and then he did them. And then he can look back on them and say to Pharaoh, didn't I do all that? Okay, so now this is what I'm going to do to you. That being the case, and knowing that these things actually did occur in time, in history, in a very literal fashion, we can then, I won't say can, we are then forced to conclude that the stuff we're about to read also has to happen. That's why I think it was worth taking the time to read this middle section of Ezekiel, even though it's not written to us and it's not 
not really about us, and not re but still we can learn from it. Still, as Paul said, these things were written for our admonition. And what I hope we're learning from it is that there is a very genuine literal fulfillment to the things that God has prophesied. And because those things have taken place in time and history, the rest of the book has to take place in time and history. There are plenty of websites and arguments and debates about the temple at the end of the book of Ezekiel. And is it literal and is it genuine or can we allegorize it and spiritualize it? Well, since we haven't been able to do that to the whole rest of the book, I, I don't know why we'd start now. And what about the fact that God is going to raise up the whole house of Israel? And what about the fact that he's going to restore Judah and he's going to restore the northern and the southern kingdoms again? And what, what about all that? Well, I say that all actually has to happen genuinely and literally because everything we've seen so far has happened genuinely and literally. And I think that's one of the great strengths of the book of Ezekiel. So if you weren't keeping up till now... I hope that that kind of caught you up and gave you a, a decent overview of why this much of Ezekiel so far has been so important to our understanding and to our eschatology and to our concept of God and how the word of God plays out in human history. Got it? Got it. Okay, good. Questions? Nothing? Well, good. Say goodbye to the internet, folks. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.